When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. A little bit later, we'll be talking with the Washington Post book critic, Carlos Lozada, and getting his take on some of the notable books of the past year. But first, here's some publishing news. This week, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' book, The Chief's Chief, was published. Lots of news came out of it, including that President Trump had tested positive for COVID-19 prior to the first presidential debate. The former president was in the White House bunker for safety following the murder of George Floyd and that the then president threatened to bomb an Afghan village if a Taliban leader did not cooperate with him. While President Trump did write a book cover blurb for the chief's chief, he has since denounced some of the revelations as fake news. All Seasons Press is the publisher. Also this week, the children's publisher Scholastic home of the Harry Potter series and worth an estimated $1.2 billion, is facing a potential challenge to the company's recent leadership succession. The publisher's former CEO, Dick Robinson, who died earlier this year, left the majority of the company's stock to a longtime employee. Now, this surprised Mr. Robinson's family. Scholastic was founded by Mr. Robinson's father in 1920, and was considered a family business. According to news reports, Mr. Robinson's two sons have requested documentation related to his will. They are considering a legal challenge. Now for further reading on this issue, the Wall Street Journal has reported extensively on it. Now in other news, Random House announced that they'll be publishing National Book Award winner historian Taya Miles' next book, It's a dual biography about Harriet Jacobs and Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's entitled Harriet's Mirror, and it will look at the relationship between the two abolitionists. Taya Miles won this year's National Book Award for Nonfiction for her book, All That She Carried. Also in the news, Nicole Pearl Roth is an award winner. Her new book is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends and it won the Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year. It's an annual award given to, quote, the most compelling and enjoyable insight into business issues book, and it comes with a $40,000 monetary prize. And finally, according to the NPD BookScan, print book sales were up almost 10% for the week ending November 28th as we enter the holiday book buying period. Adult nonfiction sales were down 1%, still up 6% for the year. A side note, nearly one quarter of all books are sold during the holiday period. And Carlos Lozada, 
is the Washington Post nonfiction book critic. He's an author himself, and he's a Pulitzer Prize winner as well. He joins us on About Books. Mr. Lozada, this is a look back at 2021. What's your year been like? What have you been doing? Uh, I've been reading a lot of books. Um, I've been uh, enjoying having my kids back in uh, real school, um, which has also made it easier to read a lot of books. Um, and I've been reading a lot of books in particular about 9-11 because uh, of the 20th anniversary. I wanted to kind of look back at, at that as well. And what did you find in that reread of some of those books? Uh, well, I wish I could say they were all rereads. There were just a lot of books I had, I had missed along the way. Um, and one thing that I concluded from reading about uh, 20 books, 21 books on, on various aspects of 9-11 is that you know, it was an attack that our, our leaders said uh, was an attack on our values. Um, and yet in our response to the attack, we often undermined the values that we claimed we were upholding. So that was one of the, the tragedies of the, of the era. And it wasn't something that um, was entirely novel to, you know, to, to my own, uh, you know, thinking, but I just hadn't um, I hadn't hit on that until I just went back and read a lot of these books. Now, one of the books you read was Lawrence Wright's The Looming Tower. Does it hold yes. up after all these years? Oh, absolutely. The Looming Tower is um, one of the truly extraordinary works on the on the run up to to nine eleven on how we how we got to that moment. I would also highlight um, Steve Call's Ghost Wars. Uh, in that, in that mix, um, and uh, it was interesting. One of the reasons that I was thinking a lot about the looming tower this year um, was not just because of the 9/11 anniversary, but also because I read Lawrence Wright's *The The Plague Year*, um, and in many ways I felt that I was reading just a a different version of of the looming tower because it was all about missed warnings. Uh, of of this great threat that was coming, um, you know, mixed signals uh, in different officials, um, and I I probably wouldn't have connected those two, um, you know, if if not for the for the sort of coincidence of the 9/11 anniversary and um, our our experience with with COVID. Well, before we move on to some of the your favorite books of the year, some of the notables that you found, I wanted to ask you how long did it take to write that essay? on 9-11 that was published in the Washington Post. Yeah, I, I have to thank my, my editors at the Post for this because um, it, it took a lot of, a lot of my year. Um, the, pr probably in late 2020 uh, was when I kind of had the idea that, okay, the anniversary is coming next year. I wanna look back on the, on the literature of 9-11. And, you know, my editor, Adam Kushner, in Outlook at the Post said, just go for it. You know, that, that sounds great. So first I just started putting together a spreadsheet of, of relevant books. And when I got to a few hundred, I realized there's no way I can do this um, in a comprehensive manner. So I have to be just ruthless in how I, how I select the books. And so I ended up picking uh, 21 books. And I was reading them on and off, I would say, from about March of... 2021 of, of this year to um, 
to the end of July. Um, I was reviewing other books along the way, but I was I was reviewing less and I was trying to focus as much attention as I could on the 9-11 books. And then I spent um, a good chunk of August writing it. Uh, and then we published in, in September. I've never devoted that much time to a single essay. Um, I devoted that much time to to the book I wrote um, in uh, published in, in 2020, but never to something that I was writing for the Post. Uh, and I'm just grateful that I had that opportunity. As the nonfiction book critic at the Post, how much freedom do you have in your day? How do you structure your day? There are days that are all about reading, and there are days that are all about writing. You know, and um, and they split sort of evenly um, throughout the week. Uh, so I'm usually up fairly early um, doing some reading. Um, now that we're working uh, from home, uh, for the most part, though we intend to, to, to return to the Washington Post uh, early next year, um, my day kind of can wrap up um, when my children get home from school. Uh, and then, you know, you're with, you're with the kids, you know, there's dinner, there's bedtime, and then I might read um, for some time in the late evening as well. Um, writing days are, are completely different. You know, I just kind of hold myself up in, in, in my, my home office and, um, and try to write in, in spurts. And it's a lot of writing and rewriting. Um, but when the weather's nice uh, and it's a reading day, you know, I just lay out in my in my hammock and I and I try to persuade uh, my my children that really daddy's working. Daddy's working when he's laying out in the hammock reading a book. Uh, when you return to the office, does that put a crimp in that in that schedule or is that going to be is that something that uh, is more of a natural fit for you to write and read at the office? I like writing uh, in the newsroom. Um, it just feels natural. I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable there. I was a news editor for many years at the Post before um, becoming a book critic. And so even though in lots of news organizations, you know, the, the critics are sort of never around because they're, they're doing what they do on their own time and in their own homes or other locations, I, I like being in the room. And so uh, if I can end up with a schedule where my, my reading is you know, happens a lot of it at home, some of it in the newsroom, and my writing happens in the newsroom, that would be great. Um, but we'll see kind of how it all shakes out as we get back in the swing of being in, a, in, the, in the physical newsroom. Carlos Lozada, you're not only a book critic, but you're a book author. What Were We Thinking is the name of your 2020 book. What was the topic? Uh, well, it was a book that mixed um, in my, my role as a, as a critic, because it was um, a look at the just voracious, expansive literature that emerged uh, on the Trump presidency. The, the subtitle of, of the book, What Were We Thinking?, is A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Presidency. And so I explored about 150 books um, that dealt in some way with, with that period, um, divided it up into some of, the, some of the big debates of the Trump presidency over, over democracy, over truth, over identity, over the white working class, over Russia. Um, and I tried to see what those books were, were saying uh, collectively about, about America during this period. It was just a way also for me to try to um, you know, get down on paper how, how I thought about it at the time. Um, 
uh, and you know the nice thing is that there there's plenty more to come that that project doesn't doesn't end there have been a ton of books already that have come out uh, sort of post Trump presidency um, and and many more that are that are on the way was there an added level of I don't know hysteria or animus in some of the Trump books that you read as opposed to other presidents? Uh, well, I've never done as intense a dive into, you know, all the books surrounding one presidency um, as as I have with with Trump. In fact, in, in part because my my time as a book critic basically started right around the time that he launched his presidential campaign. Um, there certainly was um, uh, an overwhelming, you know, output of 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 works. On the, on Trump and the Trump presidency, um, I would I I've read that there were about you know, four or five hundred books that in some ways dealt with the first term of the Obama presidency, uh, and yet for the equivalent period of the Trump presidency, um, it was more like like twelve hundred. Um, so that alone tells you um, I don't know if you want to call it call it um, hysteria, but sort of an endless supply, and a lot of those books. Um, would would have a recurring line in the in the you know in the prologue or in the acknowledgments where they say the authors often said you know I I decided to write this book on election night 2016 you know a lot of people who mainly who maybe wouldn't have have written books about about a a presidency felt compelled to to write about about this presidency and so you saw you know especially at the beginning many of them were were driven by that kind of um, emotional impulse um, early on. Like, I want to get down on paper how how this is making me feel. Carlos Lozada, we asked you in advance about some of your favorite books of 2021. You've mentioned The Plague Year uh, by Lawrence Wright, but another one that you mentioned was a post-Trump presidency book, Adam Schiff's, Representative Adam Schiff's Midnight in Washington. Why did that attract you? Yes, a lot of the what I would call the the first generation Trump books uh, that came out during during the Trump presidency um, were were the kind of books it kind of molded on on Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury that were almost felt like they were competing for who could unearth the most outlandish anecdote. Uh, you know, can you believe he said this, or can you believe he asked that, or can you believe you know um, fill in the blank, whatever it is that that. That Donald Trump was was doing on any given day or week, um, and those are useful. Those are useful books um, for the historical record. They're they're essential. Uh, but I think some of the books that you're seeing now that can be a little bit more retrospective um, are doing something more. Um, are developing some kind of broader argument. Uh, Schiff's book is is one of those. Um, Schiff makes the case that. Uh, look, it's not just Donald Trump who was who was violating uh, and upending all these you know norms of accepted presidential behavior. Um, it was Republicans in in Congress and in the administration who who either didn't have the um, you know the courage or the willingness or the inclination to stand up to it. Um, you know that was that was the argument that he developed in in the course of um, obviously being. A, an essential person in the impeachment process of, of President Trump. Um, 
Schiff's book also is kind of a how-to manual for for attempting to hold leaders to account in an era when oversight feels like it's been weakened. And so in that sense, I think it's a book that will continue being useful uh, down the road. A lot of the Trump books are very much in the moment. You know, they, they feel ephemeral and dated almost on publication. And this is not one of those. Now, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, just published The Chief's Chief. Is that one that you think will be a valuable resource, one that you'll review? Uh, you know, I haven't read it yet. I, I do intend to. Um, there's so many of these uh, Trump books and, and sort of memoirs that, that come out that reviewing them one at a time is not always the most useful approach. Sometimes I, I sort of wait for a, for a critical mass uh, of, of books and then try to tackle them together to see what we're learning collectively from them. So I've really only reviewed a, a handful of the of the latest uh, generation of, of Trump books. I reviewed Fiona Hill's memoir, um, Stephanie Grisham's memoir. Um, there's been a lot of journalistic books uh, that have come out uh, in, in recent months and more that are coming next year. I'm probably gonna wait to tackle a lot of those together um, and, and see what I'm learning. I think also readers appreciate that because there's so many different books out there and they want to know, well, how do these kind of speak to each other and how do they compare to one another? Well, another one of the books that you sent us in advance was Louis Manon's The Free World. Why did that appeal to you? That was a very different kind of book. So um, Manon is, is best known for, well, I mean, he's a, he's a terrific um, New Yorker writer and he, um, he wrote the, the Metaphysical Club, which won the Pulitzer Prize you know, sometime in the in, in the 2000s um, uh, for his his look at at the the pragmatists and their their impact on American intellectual life, John Dewey, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And um, this book is a just delightful read. Um, it's a look at the 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 cultural life of the early Cold War, mainly in the United States, um, partially as well in in Europe. Um, and in a moment when American policy, foreign policy and national security policy was all about containment, um, the American artistic and cultural world just kind of exploded, was, was totally uncontainable. Um, and he, he explores, um, you know, composers and novelists and, and artists, you know, painters and dancers and essayists um, and each chapter, it's it's a very lengthy book. I think it's around 800 or so pages. Um, and each chapter feels like almost like a a, a mini book in itself. Um, looking at you know whether it's it's Pollock or whether um, it's the Beatles or you know or any any number of of um, of uh, sort of um, you know art forms that that were prevalent in this period. And it's the weirdest thing because it was an 800 book that I just didn't want to see end. I wanted it to keep going. Um, and I feel that in some ways it, it spoke to um, his, his prior book. I, I wrote in my review, I think, that, that Menand is, is a chronicler of the American mind in moments when that mind is having second thoughts, when, when the country is going through um, big cultural and intellectual shifts. And he's able to kind of zero in on, on those moments. So that was a book that I, I very much enjoyed reading. 
one other book I wanted to bring up before we close out this discussion. Nicole Hannah-Jones, The 1619 Project, the importance of that book. Uh, I think The 1619 Project uh, was able to, you know, bring to the fore a, a, a massive conversation, just a seismic, seismic national conversation um, about the, the legacy of, of slavery. Um, I, I reviewed that book very recently. In fact, it's, it's the one I think I've reviewed most recently. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting because the, the project is all sorts of things, right? It's the original magazine essays that came out a few years ago. It's, it's a wonderful podcast series. You know, it's a children's book. It's this, it's this new book. And what I attempted to do in, in, in my review is to see, um, you know, how the project has evolved over time. And one of the things I found most interesting uh, is that it has moved from being primarily, uh, you know, portrayed and executed as, as a historical corrective. You know, let's, let's look back at, at American history and see, you know, the importance of 1619, which is when the first um, slave ship came to the American uh, British colonies. Um, and, and, you know, and place that moment's importance in, in, its, in its, you know, proper place for, for American history. Um, it's evolved into um, a, a political project, a, a policy agenda that its authors, especially its, its, its primary author, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, argues, uh, you know, flows from that new history. Um, and so to me, that's, that's an interesting evolution, uh, maybe even an interesting tension, you know, coming from a, from a, from a news organization like, like the New York Times. And so that's part of what I tried to explore as I was, as I was reviewing it. Um, it's certainly one of those um, books that is um, impossible to ignore and avoid. Um, and um, and yeah, but that was the way I I came at it. Now, Carlos Lozada, this final question is a little bit out of your bailiwick, but book sales, nonfiction book sales, are up about ten percent this year. Uh, is there? Do you see anything? in those in that number and when it comes to hardcover sales as opposed to ebook sales hardcovers are still the dominant force it looks like ebooks have pretty much plateaued yeah i don't i don't um i mean this is going to sound silly but i don't sort of obsessively follow the the trends in the in the publishing marketplace um, um i'm i'm delighted that that book sales are are you know um, strong? Um, I think that you know sometimes it depends on what month you're looking at at the year over year sales because there's some books that come out like you know Barack Obama's memoir you know and 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 it accounts for some like you know inordinate number of of the books sold in a in a particular period. Um, but I'm not surprised as as you put it that um, that hardcover sales are. Um, are doing well, I think, especially in a pandemic period when people aren't going out as much. Um, you know, it, it, it may be that that folks like to, um, you know, cozy up with an old-fashioned hardcover book. That's how I read. I I um I hate reading digitally. Um, I can't. I I I feel like it's a completely different experience. Um, and so for me, that's um it's it's habit. It's also you know just just comforting. All the books behind me 
are books that um, I have written about um, in the Washington Post or or elsewhere. And, um, you know, I, I just kind of like like the the physical presence of these of these books. Um, I, I can't imagine uh, being a, a sort of, you know, digital reader or or tablet person, though I suppose we'll all end up that way. Carlos Lozada is the nonfiction book critic for the Washington Post. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he's an author himself. His book is called What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. And he's been our guest on the About Books podcast and program. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Peter. Now, before we move on to some other topics, let's look at some of the other Washington Post notable books that Carlos did not mention. In The Codebreaker, best-selling author Walter Isaacson looks at the work of Jennifer Doudna, who invented a DNA editing technology. Heather McGee examines the cost of racism for all Americans in The Sum of Us. In The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty looks at the former First Lady's political life. And in other books that The Washington Post notes as notable, Michael Pollan reports on how psychedelic drugs are being used for medicinal purposes. His book is called This Is Your Mind on Plants. And in Tangled Up in Blue, Georgetown University law professor, former reserve police officer Rosa Brooks offers suggestions on police reform. Ms. Brooks discussed her book on our author interview program afterwards a few months ago. Police can't change the laws by themselves. You know, police can't change the social context. And I think often police get the blame for enforcing laws that they didn't create in a, in a social context. They can't do much to change. And in a way, I think that's, you know, when, when we blame police for that, it's a way for the rest of us not to look in the mirror and say, oh, you know, cops are arresting people for really trivial offenses. And we think that harms the community. Well, we voted for the lawmakers who wrote the laws that led the cops to do that. You know, and when you look at long prison sentences, mass incarceration, a lot of that is prosecutors, judges, lawmakers. Um, so that's that's number one, you know, I think is that there are some things that cops can't change, but that we as a society urgently need to change the massive overcriminalization that we've seen in the last couple of decades, the excessive sentences, uh, the and and the the cuts in other social services that might make some of what police do things that they don't have to do anymore. You know, that said, I do think that there are a lot of things police departments need to be doing. And as you know, again, one of the difficulties with policing, we don't have a national police force. We have almost 18,000 different law enforcement agencies. They don't always talk to each other or think they ought to talk to each other. So it's very hard, you know, even if there's some approach that's really innovative and promising, it's tough to get everybody to pay attention. And that was Georgetown professor and former law enforcement officer Rosa Brooks talking about her book, Tangled Up in Blue. Now you can watch all Book TV programs online at booktv.org. And our afterwards program that you just saw with Rosa Brooks is also available as a podcast. That's available at C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this is the About Books podcast and program. It's Book TV's look at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. Well, recently, author and historian Victor Davis Hanson 
Join Book TV for our monthly call-in program, which is called In Depth. He came on to talk about American political history and his many books. In case you missed it, here's just a bit of that program. This idea that um, today that uh, you cancel somebody out because you don't agree with them or you tear down statues without a, a consensual vote of a city council or you rename things without any consistency or you, it's kind of Trotskyizing. We're, we're washing away people or names or ideas that we don't like and we're not doing it in the light of day with necessarily always on a, a majority vote or through a constitutional means or we're uh, berating people or we're suspending free speech or the due process on campuses. So this isn't the Democratic Party that a lot of us knew. And that was author and historian Victor Davis Hanson on Book TV's In-Depth program. A reminder that In-Depth is live the first Sunday of every month at noon. We invite one prominent author on to talk about his or her body of work and to take viewer phone calls. In January, another historian will be our guest. It's Alan Gelzo, and he'll talk about the early intellectual history of the United States, the Civil War, the Reconstruction Era, Abraham Lincoln, Robert E. Lee, etc. And he'll be taking your calls as well. In February, Georgetown University's Cheryl Cashin will be our guest. And finally, here on About Books, here's a look at the best-selling nonfiction books, according to the Los Angeles Times. Topping the list is Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones' look at American history and slavery and its legacy. That's followed by These Precious Days, a collection of essays by novelist Ann Patchett. After that, musician Dave Grohl's memoir, The Storyteller. And wrapping up our look at the Los Angeles Times' best-selling nonfiction books are two more memoirs, Paul McCartney's The Lyrics and Stanley Tucci's Taste, My Life Through Food. And that's a look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us on About Books. About Books is available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on C-SPAN's app, C-SPAN Now.